Most of these patients can be controlled with medicine, so they absolutely should see a neurologist first. The problem is that when the medicines don't work, there's not a good mechanism for getting them to doctors who can help them. And the doctors that are in charge in many cases don't know when to appropriate. Farham Safians, welcome back to Epilepsy Spark Insights. Now, lots of people are waiting not just months, not just years, but some people are even waiting decades for epilepsy surgery, during which time they can experience injuries, slowing in or even regression in cognitive functions, their movement disorders, behavioural issues, mental health illnesses, social exclusion or even death. And of course, that's not to mention, of course, in addition, the impact on families as well. So today, in part three of three, Epilepsy neurosurgeon Luke Tomic speaks about what is or what might be holding clinicians back when it comes to even thinking, talking about or referring people with refractory epilepsy for a pre-surgical workup. Now onto our star of the week, Luke Tomic. My name is Luke Tomic. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon by training, but now my practice basically specializes in pediatric and adult epilepsy care. And um, I'm the chief of pediatric epilepsy at Cesare Children's Hospital at Hackensack, uh, in Hackensack, New Jersey. And um, yeah, so that's that's basically who I am and what my practice consists of. We've spoken of risks and, and even, you know, the worst potential death during surgery. There's always these risks. But do you also talk to people about how actually, in many cases, people's life expectancy is going to improve post-surgery? Because some people are at very high risk of injury and death, right? If they don't have the surgery. Yeah, and that's been pretty well looked at, that there is a cumulative risk of death each year in a patient who has uncontrolled seizures. Um, so, so again, if we can stop the seizures over the long term, uh, you know, the, the way I look at it, and I often describe it to patients, is yes, you are taking some upfront risk with surgery. But it's not like you're taking some upfront risk, and if you don't do surgery, there's no risk. You're balancing risks, right? It's the risk of upfront risk of surgery, which in most cases is quite small, with the known risk each year of SUDEP, of decline in neurologic function because of recurrent seizures and their mal-effect on the brain. And so I think, you know, look, I, we always look at surgery as, um, you know, that's the intervention, and if we just don't do the intervention, we avoid the risk. Well. Unfortunately, it's not like that in our patients with epilepsy. You know, unfortunately, when you have drug-resistant epilepsy, you're a little bit in between a rock and a hard place because obviously nobody wants surgery. Nobody, you know, jumps towards surgery typically, although some patients are quite excited when they find out they're surgical candidates because they're so tired of their seizures. They, that's how they I want. felt, yeah. That's how you felt. Yeah. So again, I, we, we do certainly have those patients, but but for the most part, none of us want surgery, but we realize that it's not just the choice of surgery and the risk of surgery. It's the choice of surgery and the risk of surgery versus the risk of living with epilepsy. And there is a risk of living with epilepsy. And I'd say, especially for children, um, like we hear, uh, as you kind of implied or we implied near the beginning, that people are not getting the help they need for epilepsy, generally speaking, in this world. Um, and many, many people should be, in my opinion, referred for surgery more uh, earlier than they already are. I mean, I've read in literature uh, there's an average of like 20 years 
in in both the US and the UK before somebody's referred for surgery. And I can say, you know, from personal experience, that is absolutely, it's immoral, actually. But when we know that we can help so many people, we can prevent them from having cognitive um, difficulty later in life, at least to a degree. Um, we can, uh, you know, lengthen their, their, increase their life expectancy and quality of life many times. Of course, these are generalizations, but I can say as a person who's experienced this, this is why I'm, I'm delighted to talk to you, is that, we need more people like yourself. We need more surgeons who are going to be able to analyze us and say, okay, this person's suitable or not, and actually help us get the surgery, but also ensure that we are cared for afterwards because it's obviously not a one night thing. Uh, everything you're saying is true. So I'll take it a few things at a time. There is, There are a lot of patients who could benefit from surgery who aren't getting it. Um, about two years ago, we, we wrote a paper for epilepsy entitled Deciphering the Treatment Gap. And we really carefully looked at this literature and reviewed it. And, you know, by most estimates, we're probably treating anywhere from maybe two to eight percent of appropriate surgical candidates, which means the vast majority who could benefit from surgery are not getting it. In many cases, they're not even hearing about it. So let me tell nice. you about my practice. I know. Let me tell you about my practice because, again, I, I see I take care of mostly epilepsy patients now. It's almost every week that I speak to a patient who says something along the lines of, you know, Dr. Tomich, I, I've been having seizures for eight years or 10 years or 15 years, and I've had five neurologists or eight different neurologists, and I've been on five medicines or 10 medicines why is this the first time that I'm hearing I could be a surgical candidate? And honestly, it's gotten to the point where it, it's devastating when I hear this. I feel like it's a tragic situation for this patient because here we have a patient in front of us who's not afraid of surgery. They want surgery. In fact, mm. many of them say, I've been asking for it. I've been asking any neurologist who will listen, could I be a candidate? And they all say, no, 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 no. Well, but then, but then they end up getting surgery and they end up getting seizure-free. There was a study that looked at patients who get surgery and are seizure-free after surgery, and they were asked, what were the obstacles for you to get to the OR? So more than 50% of them said the obstacle was their epileptologist. Not even solely a neurologist, but an actually epilepsy specialist, an epileptologist. Certainly, look, certainly there is a difference between a neurologist and an epileptologist, a big difference, you know, in training and in yeah. knowledge. But but the, the unfortunate fact is that we know, you know, I'll just tell you, we, we did a quality improvement study here at our hospital. And what we saw, we took all of the patients, we did a, um, a EMR, electronic medical record search, all the patients with the diagnosis of epilepsy who had already been tried on three or more medicines. So according to the American Academy of Neurology, if you have epilepsy, you've been tried on three or more medicines, you should be referred to a surgeon or a surgical center, a multidisciplinary center that includes surgery. And we found that something like 5% of these patients had any surgical note, which again means that the epileptologist, in many cases, is simply trying a new medicine and trying a new medicine. And we know okay, there's very good literature back New England Journal 2001, I think, um, saying that if you've tried two medicines, the chance that the third will work is about 4%. And by the time you get to the fourth and fifth, we're, we're talking, it's, it's, it's probably not a good, it's probably not going to work. And so, again, um, 
and, and I, I, you could go more into that data. You could look at patients with cortical dysplasia or patients with mesial temporal sclerosis or patients with a lesion and say that, you know, again, their chance of getting um, seizure-free with medicine is, is, is very low, even at the onset. And so I think, you know, I don't look, I'll tell you, even though I've thought about this problem for years, I don't fully understand it. But what I can tell you is that um, surgeons operate for a living. So obviously, I'm looking for patients I can help with surgery because that's what I do. Neurologists uh, give, give, you know, they, they, uh, they, they play a very important role. I'm not diminishing the role, but I think there is this in-between. Uh, so so they, they read EEGs, they treat medicine, they manage the, epilep- uh, the patient with epilepsy sort of uh, broadly, but I think in between surgery and in between epilepsy is this field of, well, who identifies the surgical candidate? And I'll tell you, we didn't get much training in residency about how to do that, and I don't think epileptologists do either. And so it's almost like a discipline in between disciplines. And there's, you know, every every center does this differently, and and I think nobody does it very well, unfortunately. Well, some places do it very well, but uh, for the most part, you know, there's uh, a gap and there's a deficit here. And that's been extensively written about. I mean, there, there have been surveys of neurologists, um, even just uh, having neurologists appropriately define drug-resistant epilepsy. Now, listen, if you can't define drug-resistant epilepsy, you're going to have a hard time referring to a surgeon. Okay. Yeah. But, but there, are, there are studies from everywhere, from Michigan to Norway, showing that fewer than half neurologists are able to appropriately identify drug-resistant epilepsy. Well, that's a big problem, right? It's a huge problem because these doctors are the gatekeepers, right? They're never going to come see me as a surgeon first, right? They're going to see a neurologist first. Most of these patients can be controlled with medicine, so they absolutely should see a neurologist first. The problem is that when the medicines don't work, there's not a good mechanism for getting them to doctors who can help them. And the doctors that are in charge in many cases don't know when to appropriately. You know, I'll just give you just yesterday. I saw a new patient for um, epilepsy referral from a neurologist with temporal lobe epilepsy. Okay. Referred to me for vagal nerve stimulator. Well, is that appropriate? No, it's not appropriate. Vagal nerve stimulator is something that very rarely leads to seizure freedom and should be reserved for patients who don't have a resectable, a focal resectable epilepsy. But guess what? Temporal lobe epilepsy is the classic surgical epilepsy, right? We should be looking to see if there are candidates for temporal lobectomy for potential cure, not just sending them for vagal nerve stimulator. And again, even to me, that sounds wild. Like, even if even I know that just like that doesn't make sense. It sounds wild, but it happens all the time. And I think we, we actually wrote an article um, about vagal nerve stimulation specifically because you know, what, what we wrote is that there's an overutilization of vagal nerve stimulation for patients who could be cured by an intracranial procedure and they're just not getting it. I'll tell you, when I moved to New Jersey, I think something like 40 out of the first 50 patients I operated on had a vagal nerve stimulator. And I ended up doing a surgery, they were seizure free, and then I removed the vagal nerve stimulator. Did they need it in the first place? I don't know. I mean, probably not, right? If there's if there's a better option that can lead to seizure freedom, why would you use a device that is at best generally palliative, you know? And so, but, but going back to why this happens, 
I, why does it happen? Well, I'll tell you why it happens. And, and this has been written about neurologists who are at centers that are seeing a lot of epilepsy patients, but not doing a lot of epilepsy surgery, simply don't know what's available. They don't know that there could be a curative option. So when they fail two or three medicines, they say, VNS, let's sign you up. It's easy because almost everybody's yeah. a candidate for VNS. You have focal epilepsy, you're a candidate for VNS. You have generalized epilepsy, uh -huh. Lennox Gasteau, you're a candidate for VNS. Um, so you don't have to do that much thinking to say VNS, but you do have to do a lot of thinking to figure out, okay, if we're going to implant you, we got to know where to implant you. You might need a PET scan. You might need an ictal spect. You might need a med. Uh, you might need a WADA. You might need a functional MRI. And so again, this is something that's our kind of bread and butter. And this is what we're doing all the time is trying to be surgical about how we think about epilepsy. Can we find focality? You know, um, and I could go on and on about this, but, you know, recently uh, I got, you know, we, I mentioned to you, we now have an international program, treated a number of patients. Mm -hmm. We were referred a patient with, you know, diagnosis of Lennox Gasto. But my first question was, did you get a PET scan ever? Did your neurologist ever? The answer was no, we didn't get a PET scan. We've been told we have generalized epilepsy. So I talked them into getting a PET scan. They finally got a PET scan and called me a few months later. Guess what? The PET scan is clearly unilateral. Hypometabolism on one side of the brain, not the other. So, so again, it's an example of a, a case that might very well do well with an implant and then a focal resection, but had sort of been, you know, there's a funny thing in medicine. If you don't look, you never find, right? So uh, a lot of times if you don't get a PET scan, you don't know that there's a focality, um, I think, and let me just say one other thing, and I'm going on a bit uh, too long on this point, but I think one of the most important things that we see are patients with normal MRIs. So I can't tell you how many times. Right. Yeah. And how frustrating is that? So I can't tell you how many times I hear from patients with normal MRIs. Well, I would love epilepsy surgery if I was a candidate, but my neurologist told me I'm not because I have a normal MRI. Well, that's just simply not accurate. Okay. A big part of my practice is MRI negative patients, patients with normal MRIs. Guess what? We, we get them seizure free, but it requires more work, a lot more. IMG and... In those patients, we generally get almost all of the non-invasive imaging, um, PET scan and spec scan, uh, you know, metabolic imaging, as well as uh, magnetoencephalography. Mm -hmm. Long story short, you can get it, but it takes work. It takes time. And, it takes, and it money. takes explaining to the money and it takes explaining to the patient. We're starting a process that might last six months to figure out if you're a surgical candidate or not. And listen, that, that's something that, again, I, I think I've gotten better over time of telling patients, look, this is our first time meeting today. I don't know if you're a surgical candidate or not, but if you want to explore it, we're going to start the process. You have to get a new EEG. You have to get admitted to the hospital for 72-hour EEG or longer uh, for ictal capture. You need a new MRI. You only have a 1.5 Tesla. I need a 3 Tesla MRI. You need a PET scan. You need perhaps an ictal spect. Again, not everybody's a candidate for that, but some patients it's very useful. You might need a MEG. You might need a WADA if you're left-sided and you're worried about language or a functional MRI. So, you know, it's the beginning of a long process of investigation and again, as we mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, this is not, you know, taking out a tumor in the brain on the surface, or this is not taking out a spinal disc herniation. 
where I might make that decision and sign the patient up for surgery in two weeks. Right. The end of it. No, this is, this is a really involved thing and it should be. And, and I think, look, Patients deserve that kind of investigation to make sure that we're doing the right thing. So epilepsy surgery challenges aren't limited to what we've spoken of in this episode. There's funding, politics, egos, discrimination, education or lack thereof, and access to specialist epilepsy neurosurgeons who aren't just good, but amazing. But it is possible. I found out myself. There is hope and we have millions of people, children and adults alike, with refractory epilepsy whose lives are worth improving and saving. Thank you to Luke for sharing his passion for improving the lives of people through epilepsy surgery. This is episode three of three with Luke and you can catch the other two, the safety and efficacy of epilepsy surgery and how do you measure epilepsy surgery success, Engel class, via YouTube or podcast.